Good morning. How are we doing? Good? All right, good. I'm doing good, too. I didn't get much sleep last night, though. You know, everybody's asking me, how you going to be up late? At, at Michelle's the other day, we were at a barbecue, and they said, you going to be up late studying for your sermon? I said, no, nah, I got it done. And then I spent about six hours last night, you know, up until the wee hours trying to get it just so. But you know what? I'm excited about what we're looking into, into today. God's Word is fresh and exciting every time you open it. And today I'm, I'm especially excited about the portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. While you're, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew 17. That's where we're going to be today. You know, when I was a kid, when I was a, a little boy, there was one thing I was very impressed with. And that was my dad. Uh, for a lot of little boys, they look up to their dad and they think, you know, dad can do anything. Dad has all the power. He can do whatever he wants. He is like Superman. And one of the reasons why I thought that was because my dad used to play this, uh, this little game. He claimed that he could stop the rain. Stop the rain. And I was convinced he could stop the rain. We were traveling on vacation. This would happen numerous times when I was a little boy. We'd be traveling on the road, and it'd start to rain. And my dad would turn to me and say, Neil, I'm going to stop the rain. And I got really excited. I couldn't wait. Okay, I know he's going to. I've seen him do this before. It's amazing. I don't know how he does it. And sure enough, he claps his hands, and the rain stopped. And then he clapped it again, and the rain started. I was totally amazed. I said, Dad, how'd you do that? I don't know. I just had the power to stop the rain. I said, do it again. He said, okay, hold on. Let me think. Let me, let me just wait a minute here. And he's, we're driving down the road and he's, he's getting ready. And I say, stop, stop the rain, Dad. Hold on, hold on. Get ready. Rain stops. Rain starts. I was blown away. Two times in a row. Two for two. But, you know, as I got older, I started to recognize that my dad didn't have the power to stop the rain. In fact, his power to stop the rain only went as far as the next overpass. <laughs> and uh, so my, my dreams, uh, my, this wishful thinking of my all-powerful dad was, was dashed to pieces. But the good thing is, I've been using this trip with Casey, and she hasn't figured it out. My wife hasn't figured it out all these years. And uh, but now she knows. So, honey, I'm sorry I don't have the power to stop the rain. You know, power is an interesting thing. Power is something that is always given. It's always bestowed in one way, shape, or form. The President of the United States is given power because we vote him into power. Ambassadors of the President of the United States are given power because he appoints them to go to another country and to act on his behalf. But the interesting thing about a person who's endowed with power is that once they do things that are outside the bounds or the wishes of the one who has given them that power, they eventually lose it. Once a president acts outside the will of the people, 
he eventually doesn't get voted into office. Once an ambassador does not act on behalf of his president to another foreign country, pretty soon he's going to lose his job. When you are endowed with power, you need to be mindful of who holds the ultimate power. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at power. We're looking at a story in Matthew 17, verse 14, in which Jesus' disciples have been given power. But of course, with power comes great responsibility. Let's take a look. Matthew 17, we're going to look at verses 14 to 21. Before we do, let me just pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask right now that you would open up our eyes, open up our ears, and soften our hearts. Lord, we, at this point in our day, we just pause and we open up your book. And we ask you to show us your truth through it. Help us, Lord, to be transformed by the teaching of your word today. In the power of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 17, starting in verse 14. Take a look. And when they, the they is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And when Peter, Jesus, James, and John had come to the multitude, a man came to Jesus kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, If you have faith, as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and by fasting. What's going on? What's, what's surrounding this story? And excuse me while I grab my water, because I've got... A dry mouth right now. What's going on in this story right now? What is surrounding this event in which Jesus heals the boy with epilepsy? And the disciples are asking, why couldn't we do this? Well, there's, this is set in an interesting portion of Scripture, this story. It is set in a period of time in which two things are happening. Number one, Jesus is growing in his frustration with the disciples. Jesus is growing in his frustration with the disciples. The second thing that's happening in this whole context in Matthew is that the disciples are starting to exert overt confidence. Overt confidence in themselves and in their own power. Take a look back seven chapters. Up on the screen you'll see Matthew chapter 10. You don't need to turn there. You can just look up there with me. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is empowering the disciples 
He's given them the opportunity to cast out demons. He says this, And when Jesus had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power, power over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper for your, in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. What's happening in Matthew 10? Jesus is giving the disciples power. He is bestowing upon 12 men the very power to heal sick and exercise demons from the demon-possessed. He's giving them power to do these things. They've been given a mission to carry out Jesus' power on earth. And if you read in in Mark's account of all of this, he talks about the disciples coming back after their journey and saying, you wouldn't believe it, Lord. We healed all, all kinds of people. We cast out so many demons. It was amazing. The disciples were thrilled to death with the new power they had been given. News got around quite fast. In Galilee, there was 12 hip guys And they were the twelve apostles. These were the men who were healing, casting out demons. And Jesus, their teacher, boy, he was even more incredible. The popularity of this group in the villages of Galilee at this period in time was at an all-time high. They were very sought-after people. But again, with power comes responsibility. Jesus gave the disciples extraordinary powers to prove to others that the kingdom of God had arrived in the person of Jesus. But he gave them this power so that they would use it properly and use it prudently. Jesus was no longer content for his disciples to remain immature followers. He wanted them to grow in their understanding of God, grow in their understanding of Jesus' teaching, and know when and how to use God's power. But as we see the story unfolding, two things happen. One, Jesus is getting frustrated with them. And two, they, the disciples, are getting quite prideful. There's six stories that occur throughout, uh, right around Matthew 17. I want you to take a look at these. The first story is this. On three, or on three separate occasions, this is one repeating thing that's going on. On three separate occasions, Jesus teaches the disciples and they don't understand it. Oh, he's getting frustrated with them. Secondly, the disciples failed to recognize Jesus' ability to feed the 4,000, even after he had fed 5,000. And if you read that story, Jesus is like, oh, man, you still don't trust me. You still don't rely on me. Three, Peter, just before, just moments, perhaps, perhaps only days before, the story we're reading today, Jesus, um, excuse me, Peter, rebukes Jesus for talking about his death and resurrection. If that's not confidence, I don't know what is. The disciples were growing in confidence. Peter was saying, oh Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not going to die. You're not going to raise from the dead. We don't want you to do that. We want you to continue doing what you're doing here on earth. Four, the disciples right after the story we are reading today 
proudly asked Jesus which of them would be the greatest. Five, the disciples improperly forbid another exorcist from casting out demons in Jesus' name. Jesus says, don't forbid him. The disciples wanted their own exclusive power, their own ability, and not someone else to carry out their work. And finally, if this doesn't demonstrate confidence, I don't know what does. James and John, two of his disciples, asked permission to call down fire on a Samaritan city that would not welcome Jesus and his followers. All time high with respect to confidence. I share with you those six elements to really, really ground in your hearts today. What is the context of this story? Jesus is growing frustrated and the disciples are getting cocky. Now we turn to our story. Now we turn to Matthew 17, 14. We pick it up. Jesus, Peter, James, and John are walking down the mountain. They've just come off the the mountain in which Jesus was transfigured. And they encounter a scene. This is what they encounter. Verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to Jesus, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I just want to point out a few things about this verse. First of all, kneeling. Uh, that's actually not an indication of his, him worshiping Jesus. This man was actually just showing reverence and showing humility, showing deference to Christ. He was coming in petition for his son, who was severely afflicted. And then the word epileptic. This is a very difficult word to translate in the New Testament because literally speaking, the, the word means moonstruck. It's a concept that has to do with a person uh, having seizures, having a kind of epileptic uh, disposition about them, uh, that they would change with the moon, so to speak. That's, that was the saying of the day. They, this, this, man was, this boy was moonstruck. He was foaming at the mouth, Mark says. We're going to read that in just a moment. He was having seizures. His body was contorting. And the father is coming to Jesus saying, Lord... Please, I beg you, do something for my son. We find out in verse 18 a little bit later on that this has to do with demon possession as well. Verse 16. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. The father had brought the boy to Jesus once he saw Jesus walking down that mountain. Prior to that, he had brought him the boy to the disciples, hoping that these 12 popular men who were well known for their healing power could heal the boy. And they couldn't. The disciples failed. And so the father brings the boy now to Jesus and says, please, your disciples couldn't, but what can you do? I think right away we we think of the question, well, why couldn't the disciples heal? What was it about this encounter with this particular demon that prevented them from curing the boy? Well, we're going to hold on to that question. We're not going to answer that quite yet. But first I want to turn to Mark Mark 9, and we'll see it on the screen. Mark 9 has a slightly, a little, little bit more of a descriptive element to this story. Take a look at Mark 9. 
And when he came to the disciples, Jesus, excuse, yes, when Jesus came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, the scri- and scribes disputing with them, that is, the religious leaders of the town. Immediately when they saw Jesus, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples, but they could not cast it out. That they should cast it out, but they could not. I'm going to pause here. And I want you to imagine the scene. Scriptures don't attest to what happened between the boy, the father, the disciples, and the multitudes, other than the fact that the disciples couldn't do it. But I want to speculate for a moment. I can't prove what I'm about to say is exactly what happened. But based on context, I want to speculate what happened prior to Jesus arriving on the scene. Imagine, if you will, the nine disciples... The remaining disciples down in the village for Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain. The nine disciples are in the town, and more likely than not, they're perhaps a little bit frustrated with Jesus that they were not asked to go with Jesus up on the mountain. They were probably a little bit perturbed. Why did he take Peter, James, and John and not us? They're not better than us. Yet their temporary frustration starts to dissipate. The town is quite fond of these nine disciples. They're the most popular newcomers in the village. People are questioning them, are you the ones who heal the sick? Are you the ones who cast out demons? Yeah, yeah, that's us. Yeah, yeah, that's us. We're the ones. Yeah, we've been given that power. Uh, it's pretty good. We're getting pretty good at it. Oh, where are the other three? Oh, uh, well... Uh, they're up on the mountain. They need some more training. Yeah, we're, we're the experts. Jesus left us down here to take care of things. And Peter, James, and John are just getting a little extra help. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're pretty excited about this whole healing power. Oh, boy, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to have. Just then, a small boy and his father walks by. And the boy begins to seize. He begins to convulse. Foam at the mouth. His body contorts. And what happens? The disciples, sitting in the town square, the nine men left in the village, start to casually walk over and survey the scene. There's a crowd gathering around the boy and his father, and they're all looking and seeing this this horrible moment. The father starts to cry. He starts to weep. Well, someone, someone please help my boy. One of the people in the crowd yell out, What about these nine healers? What about these men? We hear that that they're able to cast out demons. The father turns to the disciples, Please, help me. Help me with my boy. So the disciples walk up. One of the disciples comes up to the boy, asks the crowd to stand back. He says, don't worry, I've done this before. I can handle it. 
Stand back. I need, my, I need my space. Let me concentrate. Okay. In the name of Jesus, be healed. Nothing happens. The boy continues to foam, to contort. He's moving even more violently now. The disciple steps back a second. A bit embarrassed. Oh, for one. That's a bad term. I, was, I thought that was going to be funny, but I guess. <laughs> he goes up again. This time he comes down near the boy and puts his hand on his shoulder and says, In the name of Jesus, be healed! And this time the boy pushes him away. Continuing to have this horrible, demonic seizure. What is happening in the crowd right now? They're beginning to mock the disciples. They're beginning to cry out, Imposters! You can't cast out demons. This boy is still sick. He's still suffering. Where is your power now? Mark says the scribes were there. You better believe they took opportunity to throw ridicule and scorn on the once confident nine disciples. Just then, a person in the crowd points out, Look, there's their teacher. There's Jesus. Maybe he can do something about this. So immediately they run toward him. And we pick up the story where we are now. Why do I say all of this? Imagine the shame of the disciples at this moment in time. Imagine their feeling of helplessness. Confidence that at one time in their life been so high had been brought to its lowest elements. Verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, Matthew 17, 17. Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. The two questions, how long shall I be with you? Literally, how long shall I exist or live amongst you? Secondly, how long shall I bear with you? That's basically the word for tolerate. Do I have to tolerate this again? Why is Jesus so harsh in his statements here? Why does he call them faithless and perverse? A faithless and perverse generation. This this brings us back to other cases in Matthew in which Jesus describes a generation of people. More often than not, when he describes a generation of people, he's using a negative. He calls them evil and adulterous on a number of occasions. And he's speaking of the unbelieving Jews. However, in Matthew 17, 17, he uses two adjectives that he uses nowhere else in all of Matthew. Faithless and perverse. Those two adjectives are totally unique to the Gospel of Matthew. That leads me to believe that there's something different about this critique. There's something different about this generation's scorn. Who are the recipients 
of this rebuke? Who are the ones that Jesus is speaking to? Is it possible that Jesus includes more than just the unbelieving generation of Israel? Is it possible that Jesus could also be alluding to the unbelief of his disciples? Perhaps some of the perversity of their confidence and ways? Well, hold that thought. Let's continue on and see what we see. Verse 18. The boy comes to Jesus. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. That very hour is a figure of speech. It means immediately. Right away. Let's not gloss over this. Look at verse 18 again. Jesus spoke. And the demon was gone. The power of the kingdom of God with a word from the Messiah of Israel. You know, we, we're in the Western world and we don't have a concept of demonic activity very, very well, I don't believe. I know in African contexts, demons in the spirit world, boy, those folks are very aware of the spirit world. Let us not gloss over verse 18. It's just a simple healing. Imagine you were one in the crowd watching this whole scene unfold. The disciples failed miserably and you mocked them just like all the others. But then you saw another one come down the mountain and with a word, that demon left the boy immediately. Total amazement amongst the crowd. Jesus cured what the disciples did not have power to cure. So what happens? I love this part. Verse 19. And the disciples, I'm sure moments later, when they had a chance to, uh, when Jesus was done signing autographs, the disciples pulled him aside and said, Jesus, I can't believe what just happened. Why couldn't we cast it out? That word we there, I've, I've put in yellow because that's in the emphatic position in Greek. It's positioned in the sentence in the original language so that it's meant to be like in English italics. Why couldn't we cast it out? Why couldn't we cast out this demon? How embarrassing for us. Why would you, why would you do this to us? I thought you gave us the power. You know, we can assume two things from this question. Two things, very, very clearly. We can assume, one, that the disciples had previously cast out demons. That's self-evident. They had previously done this great feat. And secondly, we can assume that they absolutely, positively were so convinced and expected to be able to cast out this particular demon. They expected to heal the boy. Had they not expected it, you wouldn't see verse 19 in your Bibles. They did have confidence. What was the nature of that confidence is the question. Let me be very clear again. We make a grave error to assume the disciples did not confidently believe in their ability to perform a demonic exorcism. On the contrary, the Gospels suggest at this period in time 
that the the disciples' confidence was at an all-time high. Never before, never before, had they failed to perform the healing of the sick or the casting out of a demon. At this point, it's much more reasonable to assume they were convinced of their ability to handle the situation. But confidence in one's own abilities, belief in oneself, is not what Jesus is after. It should come as no surprise that Jesus, in the very next verse, in verse 20 that we see right now, says it was because of your unbelief that you could not cast it out. And so, coming back to one of the first questions I asked, why couldn't the disciples cure the boy? The answer to that is very clear. The disciples were confident in themselves. The disciples exhibited faith only in themselves and not in the faith, not, and not faith in the person who supplied their power, the person of Jesus. They could not cast out this demon because they were, were relying on their own power. Now take a look very closely at the word unbelief. Go uh, to the next slide for me, Ray. Right there at the, at the, on the side. We already looked at verse 17, faithless. And I, I, I should have given that definition earlier. That word there is uh, apistos. Apistos, excuse me. Apistos in Greek. And it's an adjective which means unbelieving or unfaithful. And notice again in verse 20. Unbelief in English. It's actually the noun form of that adjective. They're both from the same common origin. What Jesus says in verse 17, O faithless and perverse generation, he reiterates in verse 20, because you did not believe, because of your unbelief. What does this tell us? In my, my humble opinion, I believe that the rebuke in verse 17, the answer to the question, who was Jesus criticizing? Who was he speaking of? What was this generation? Did it include the unbelieving Jews? Of course it did. He always ridiculed the unbelieving Jews. But in this case, it also included his own disciples, his own followers. It was because they were faithless and they were unbelieving at that point in time. And I'm not talking salvific faith. I'm not talking the faith that saves us unto eternity. I'm talking about the kind of reliance, the kind of dependence, the kind of belief and confidence in the power of God to heal, in the power that Christ had bestowed on them. In this particular instance in the story, the disciples were being numbered with the unbelieving Jews. And so, on the slide above, who are the recipients of Jesus' rebuke? Not only the unbelieving Jews, but also the disciples. Craig Blomberg who is a New Testament scholar at Denver Seminary, comments on this particular text, and his, his sentence is very fitting. He says this, In his disgust, Jesus rebukes the disciples as if they were part and parcel of the whole wicked generation of those who rejected him. And Blomberg agrees that this is the only instance in which Jesus numbers the disciples with the unbelieving Jews. Jesus isn't doing this to say that his disciples weren't believers. That's not the case. 
though we, we can obviously speculate that Judas didn't believe at this point in time, but it's more likely than not that the disciples were believers in Christ, but that at this particular moment in time, their faith had turned into self-confidence. Their faith and power to heal had turned into, I have the power to heal. And that is exactly why Jesus rebukes them. Turning to the second part of verse 20. So Jesus has now said to them, you could not cast it out because of your unbelief. And then this is what he says. For assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. We're very familiar with this verse, aren't we? This, this is a verse that you see all over on bookmarks and Christian placards. You go in a Christian bookstore, you'll see, have the faith of a mustard seed. And it, it warms our hearts, but we oftentimes don't even think about what that means. Well, today we're going to look at what that means. But first, I want you to notice some translation issues. Take a look at the next uh, thing there. The New King James is at the top there, NKJ, translates this verse literally. There's no other way to put it. It's a very wooden translation. The New King James says that if you have faith as a mustard seed, the New American Standard and the NIV and other Bibles uh, begin to interpret for you. The word, New American Standard says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. NIV, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. Uh, Number one, the, the words in red there, the size of and as small as, are not in the Greek New Testament. They don't exist. So we know very matter-of-factly that the translators of this particular version of the Bible were adding this for clarification. They were adding this to help you and I understand the text. Unfortunately, uh, I think they're dead wrong. This issue of size has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying in verse 20. And we're going to see why. There is a significant problem with inserting the issue of size into the equation of this verse. And when we read the other translations, like I said, we get the impression that it's small faith that is successful faith. Little faith is good faith. And it helps us to overcome difficulties, to move mountains. But this is not the case. God is not pleased with small faith. God is not content with faith that is small. And I want to give you four reasons why. And then we'll look even further. The first reason is this. Small faith has nothing to do with, uh, or excuse me, four reasons why Jesus is not speaking of having small faith the size of a mustard seed. Number one, the size of the seed is not mentioned in Matthew 17, 20. Okay, we already covered that. Number two, it is highly un- improbable, highly improbable, that Jesus would be pleased with his disciples for exhibiting such a weak faith after almost two years of ministry with them. Jesus is approaching six months away from his crucifixion. And it's very doubtful at this point in time that he is content, that he is pleased with his disciples to have such an immature faith. Three. Here's where it starts to, in my opinion, starts to really become clear that it has nothing to do with size. Three, nowhere else, nowhere else in all of the New Testament 
does Jesus consider little faith as something positive? I've given you four examples. Take a look up on the next screen here. Why little faith is not something positive? It's always a negative. In Matthew 6.30, the multitudes worried about having enough clothes on their back. And Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. It's a statement of criticism. Oh, you of little faith. Why do you worry? Why do you worry? I clothe the lilies of the field. I will clothe you. Oh, you of little faith. Second instance. Matthew 8.26, the disciples feared they would drown. There was a storm on the sea. They wake up, Jesus, 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 we're going to drown. What's the first words out of his mouth? Oh, you of little faith. A statement that is criticizing their faith. Matthew 14.31, Peter starts to sink. He starts walking on water out to Jesus. And as he's walking, he begins to lose confidence. And he starts to sink. And he says, Lord, save me. What does Jesus say? Oh, you of little faith. And finally, Matthew 16, 8. In another instance in which the disciples fail to understand Jesus' teaching, the first words out of Jesus' mouth, Oh, you of little faith. Be perfectly clear. Little faith is not something Jesus understands as a positive. He understands it to be a negative. It is a criticism, not something to be sought after. And now we come to the fourth reason. I love this. I love this reason as well. The fourth reason is this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, interprets this very portion of Scripture, faith is a mustard seed, as synonymous to having all faith. All faith. Not small faith. Now Paul did not actually have the Gospel of Matthew in his hand, although he may have had some form of it. He obviously interacted with Matthew, but the, the text we're about to look at was written slightly before the Gospel of Matthew. But Paul was very, very aware of this story about Jesus. And look what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. That is a very direct allusion to Jesus' teaching about having faith as a mustard seed to move mountains. Paul is being very direct in his interpretation. And he's saying it has nothing to do with small faith. It has everything to do with all faith. It took great faith, not little faith, to move mountains. And so we come to faith as a mustard seed in verse 20. And what do we make of it? Let me submit this. It is not the quantitative size of the mustard seed that our faith is supposed to imitate. It is the qualitative elements that constitute a mustard seed that Jesus is after. Jesus likens great faith to the insignificance of a mustard seed. Much like He likens greatness in the kingdom of God to being what? Servant of all. Least of all. There are a number of scriptures that we could run through which we do not have time for today in which I can demonstrate that the least of the seeds 
which is what the mustard seed is. It's the smallest of all the seeds. That word least that is used in Matthew 13 to describe the mustard seed is later on used to describe the very children that Jesus loves and says your faith is supposed to imitate. And it's also the word that is used to describe us being great in the kingdom of God. If you want to be great, you must be least. That is faith as a mustard seed. And let me carry that out a little bit further. It has to do with dependence. It has to do with utter reliance on Christ. When you are a servant, you are dependent upon your master. A slave in the New Testament times was one who would come to his master and be reliant on him for food, for provisions, for shelter, for all of these things. And in return, he would serve and work for his master. That's why Jesus says, greatness in the kingdom of God is like being a servant of all. If you want to be great in my kingdom, and if you want to have great faith, faith that can move mountains, utterly complete faith, then make yourself servant. Make yourself humble. Make yourself meager. Make yourself dependent upon me. That is faith as a mustard seed. It is the person who is poor in spirit. It is the person who is meek. It is the person who hungers for God's righteousness. It is the person who exhibits mercy, who is humble. That, my friends, is faith as a mustard seed. Not faith that is small in size, but faith that reckons itself utterly dependent on Christ. Okay, last verse. Now Jesus gives one final element to the story, and it's only fitting. It matches perfectly well with what everything we've been seeing today through this scripture. He says, and guess what, disciples? This kind, this particular kind of demon that you were dealing with down here in the village, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Well, what is prayer and fasting? As I see it, as I understand the the Word of God, prayer is something that we do as followers of the Lord. It's a spiritual discipline in which we are turning to God in worship. And we are turning to Him in petition. And we are saying, Lord, I need You. I'm dependent upon You. So I pray to You and worship You and ask You for good things in my life. What is fasting? In the Old Testament and in the New, it's usually done as an act of mourning or to show contrition for sin or because we want to petition God for something and so we fast during the day in anticipation of a time of prayer. And in so doing, we remove physical food from our bodies as a symbol of what? Our reliance on God. Friends, this this whole section, faith is a mustard seed. Prayer, fasting, all of it flows perfectly with the notion of having utter Dependence on Christ. That is the lesson Jesus is communicating in Matthew 17. Uh, As an aside, some of you may be looking at your Bibles and saying, I don't have verse 21 in my Bibles. Well, that's that's right. The NIV, it'll it'll go from 20 to 22. And uh, in some of the other versions, it'll go from 20 to 22. That's because that in some ancient manuscripts, verse 21 was not included in the words of, of the Gospel of Matthew. And so there's scholars dispute 
You know, all the intellects dispute over whether or not verse 21 is a legitimate verse or not. Well, I'm not here to make a scholarly opinion, but as far as a contextual opinion, verse 21 falls perfectly in line with what Jesus has been saying. Fasting, prayer, that's just like having reliance on Christ. That's just like having the faith as a mustard seed. Okay, so what do we want to walk away from? What do we want to learn from this? I want you to walk away from this message considering one thing. I've just given you a sentence to consider. Our ability, our ability to accomplish meaningful and lasting works for the cause of Christ is largely contingent on the amount of dependence we have on God. We cannot do great and mighty things without dependence on Christ. I know I can't, and I know the times when I've relied on my own strength. And nine times out of ten, I failed and fell straight on my face. And I'm sure you have instances in your life that you could point to and say, yep, I relied on myself and I failed. So I ask you today, is there something in your walk, in, in your daily life, that right now you're thinking, you know what, I am... I am trying this on my own. I am doing this apart from reliance on God. Jesus is teaching us here. Our faith must be as a mustard seed. As a mustard seed is contingent on good soil to make it grow, so we also need to be contingent on and reliant upon Christ so that we can flourish. We can overcome difficulties we can, in a manner of speaking, move mountains. That is the lesson of Matthew 17. When we fail, excuse me, we will fail when we become too proud. We will fail when we become too arrogant in our own abilities. When we hastily seek after power and influence. When we become impressed by our own positions of authority or our own giftedness, we will fail when we begin to think of ourselves as indispensable. Jesus Christ is my sufficiency. I am what I am because of Him, nothing more, nothing less. Friends, remember who has the power. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we... We gather today in, in worship of you. We walk into this building every Sunday in an expression of worship, in an expression of faith and confidence in you. Lord, we pray that you would instill in our hearts the desire to remain reliant and dependent on you that we would have faith as a mustard seed, that we would demonstrate through spiritual disciplines like prayer and like fasting and others our dependence on You. For we know, Lord, that our success, our ability to overcome difficulties and obstacles is virtually completely contingent 